Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent. Down the line from Dubai, we have Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent. And also down the line, we have Ridian Lewis, the chief executive of Ratesetter, as our guest this week. Today, we'll be discussing the latest incursion into consumer lending by Goldman Sachs. Secondly, a look at the latest preparations for MIFID II and what that's meaning for the research market. And finally, a look at the warning from Citigroup about trading revenues being down sharply in the third quarter of the year. First, though, to that story about Goldman Sachs, thought of as the the arch investment bank of Wall Street, but they're reinventing themselves gradually. 18 months or so ago, they launched into consumer finance in the US and now they're coming to the UK. Emma, what's all this about? That's right. So Goldman Sachs is looking to make its first foray into the UK's retail banking market by launching um, online savings accounts that offer to pay high rates. So this will be its first move into the UK savings market. And it comes after the Wall Street investment banking giant launched a similar platform in the US um, some 18 months ago. The bank has also launched a consumer lending uh, site in the US called Marcus, and it could look to also unveil something similar in the UK once it's established its online savings range. The launch comes at a time when there's mounting competition, however, in the UK savings market. Rates are still very low given the record low bank rate at 0.25%. Um, nonetheless, there are more challenger banks coming into the market and competing uh, for, for customers' deposits, so competition will be high. At the same time, it's also worth noting that a lot of banks are struggling to gain traction in this space. Uh, but one positive for Goldman Sachs is if it doesn't go for the current account market, then it won't have to um, uh, be subjected to some of the onerous regulation that comes with that. Okay, so yeah, it's an interesting time for Goldman to be doing this. Obviously, it's got its own reasons for wanting to come in. It wants to diversify its funding away from wholesale funding. And I think it wants to grab what it sees as a potentially profitable segment of consumer finance, which is booming at the moment. Let me bring in Ridian at this stage, though, from uh, Ratesetter. Ridian, you're one of the biggest peer-to-peer lenders in the UK. This um, kind of upstart model that's been facilitated by online platforms, which basically link people who want to invest their money with those who want to borrow it. First of all, what what do you make of, of Goldman's entry into this market? It's As Emma was saying, it's a pretty crowded segment of the market. It, it, is it surprising? I, I think it's um, a sign of um, the fact that they want to, the resilience of funding. Um, you know, the, this, may, this decision may have been born six or seven years ago when there was a shock in wholesale banking at how flighty funding was and that the decision seems to be to, to to be taking on some retail funding, and that brings resilience. And if you build a, a good brand, is a very stable for, so, uh, source of funding. I think one takeaway f- from our side is that, that 
the, you know, the UK retail savings market is is big and it's attractive, and and a firm like Goldman Sachs targeting it is 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 a, a demonstration of that. It's interesting timing, though, because we've had kind of signs of caution, shall we say, or even worry from uh, regulators in recent months, haven't we, about potentially a potentially overheating consumer lending market? Yes, I mean, I think it's noticeable that they that, that, that in this announcement, whereas in the States they announced concurrently a launch of a savings product and a loan product, in the UK they're just going to start with a savings product. Um, and, you know, maybe they'll see what the market's like um, in, in a year's time and decide whether they actually want to go into consumer lending or whether they'll just concentrate on a, on a savings franchise and they may consider going into other forms of lending. I mean, on the subject of consumer credit, there has been a lot of headlines and a lot of concern and, and you know, right right at the top in terms of the Bank of England um, putting out some signs of concern. The, the key thing, I guess, from any lender's perspective is understanding the trends and also understanding pricing because... It's one thing, absolute levels of defaults going up, but really in in lending, the important thing is to be able to uh, take an appropriate risk margin for those defaults. And it might be that actually the, the cycle's turning a little bit there in the sense that in anticipation of higher defaults, a lot of lenders are, are retreating, which is resulting in, in risk margins that make those people who continue to lend um, actually quite sustainable. So... It's a lot to do with pricing as well as absolute defaults. And that point is a key one for a business like yours as a peer-to-peer lender. Obviously, traditional banks take that risk between the pricing they put on loans and the pricing they put on deposits onto their own balance sheets. But you, as a kind of platform intermediary, are kind of linking up those two sides. Um, And in effect, the, the risk to borrowers goes on to those who are providing the funding. How are you navigating yes. that whole space? Yeah, I mean, we, we, our, our, we see our key responsibility is to make sure that we understand the risk of, of people borrowing through our platform, but also making sure that we price that correctly via, and, and that goes into something called the rate set of provision fund. And um, so long as you actually price the risk effectively, then you can go through various different cycles. And the recent, the the recent stress that you've had on that, tell us a little bit about how you came through that challenge. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that was a... Um, w- the challenge was, was, was outside of our core kind of consumer lending, and it was to do with a, a wholesale lending division that we subsequently um, retreated from. And um, actually, for a young business, we have felt that we have ridden a, uh, a difficult um, episode in a very resilient way. And um, in the last three or four months, the amount of money coming into Ratesetter has ticked up. And everyone fears in a young industry when something becomes a challenge. And really, it's only when you're put to the test and come through it that people begin to trust your competence. And actually, we see some of the scrutiny of peer-to-peer lending in the last three months, six months as something to be very welcome because it people want to see it tested. And the only way that you can prove your resilience is to, is to pass those tests. And the, I, I feel the businesses and, and, and the leading players in the industry are actually way well positioned for the credit uh, outlook, partly because they are very open and transparent about expectations. One of the advantages of funding loans with investment capital, which is what peer-to-peer lending does, as opposed to with deposits, is that you are funding it with with money that understands 
a variable return and understands risk and return. Whereas with bank funding, funds it with deposits, it's quite a binary outcome and it means that they're perhaps less flexible. So, you know, the, the, everyone recognizes that peer-to-peer lending needs to go through a, a series of challenges to show its resilience. And I think that we're well-placed to do that. Well, those challenges probably are looming at some point on the horizon in the next year or so. Um, We'll see how peer-to-peer and Goldman Sachs and the established players all fare. My thanks to Ridian for joining us. Thank you. Let's move on to our second topic now and a look at what the MIFID II regulations, which are upcoming in a a few months, will mean for the research landscape. Um, Joined by Laura, who's uh, just arrived, I think, in Dubai. Thanks very much for joining us, Laura. You wrote a big piece about this the other day with some colleagues, how things are shaping up, because it is going to revolutionise the way in which the research world deals with their clients on the uh, on the buy side. Yeah, so we've been following MIFID 2 and how it affects research for a long time. So the overall gist of MIFID 2 is that instead of having clients pay implied fees for research, so you pay for the so you pay um, the commission or the or you you pay a bank generally to trade instead and then you don't actually pay explicitly for research. What the regulators want want banks to do is they want banks to explicitly charge for research and they want investment managers to explicitly pay for it. Now we have traditionally written about how this is going to impact equity research. Equity research tends to be a bigger area and it's one that we spend the most attention on but actually recently a number of issues have come up in terms of how it will affect fixed income research now fixed income research covers everything on research about bonds then to some of the more macro research so commentary around economics growth those kind of big big picture issues can also feed into this fixed income research space and that actually is proving a much trickier space for banks to get a handle on than actually how they're going to handle it on the equity research side and banks have emerged quite divided in terms of in terms of both their understanding of what they are allowed to do and then their approach to what they actually want to do. Yeah, because we've seen uh, some banks talk about actually pricing the research in some kind of macro areas at zero. Yeah, so that's one of the things that's kind of caught people's attention. So the overall objective of this piece of legislation, MIFID 2, was that um, investment managers would pay explicitly. However, Back in April, ESMA, which is, the, which is the regulator overseeing this, they then clarified that in the case of some parts of fixing income research, you could, make it, you could make the research available to everybody, and then on that basis, you wouldn't have to charge for it. There's also a separate opt-out which says that if the research doesn't have any value and doesn't add and doesn't make any investment recommendations, then you can also provide it for free. Now, some banks are being quite bullish about this, they think it actually enables them to give a lot of research for free. And some of the more aggressive in that area would be ING, DIA um, and Danske Bank and Credit Suisse also. Other banks, mainly the US banks, are taking a much more conservative space. And they argue that even if you were in theory allowed to provide all of your fixed income research for free under MIFID 2 to everybody, you would then come up against the other rules around how you're allowed to distribute research and how you're allowed to engage with um, clients. So they say that um, when it comes to certain types of research and recommendations, they have to establish their client is suitable. So they're not allowed to give sophisticated, to give, to give investment recommendations on sophisticated products to retail investors. They're also required to know a certain amount about their, about their clients. So they say that it will be 
very difficult if not completely um, uh, they, they say it would be very difficult if not totally um, impossible for them to make something available to everyone because they couldn't possibly prove everyone is suitable for the advice and they couldn't possibly prove that they knew all of their clients when all of their, of their clients is the general public at large. Well, one thing is for sure, uh, regardless of all the different models that people are considering now, the current landscape is going to be thrown up in the air when these new rules come in in Europe uh, in the new year. Laura, thanks very much for your thoughts on that. And let's move on for a, a quick final look uh, on a third item at Citigroup, which we had a very interesting change in expectations from City, and I, I, I suspect you'll think it has ramifications across Wall Street because the bank warned at a conference the other day that trading revenues for the third quarter were going to be sharply down. Yeah, so City's chief financial officer, John Gersbach, he was speaking at a big conference Barclays hosted in New York this week. He used his um, his appearance at that to basically warn that City's trading revenues will be 15% lower for the third quarter of this year than they were a year earlier. Now, if, if we do flash back to the third quarter of 2016, it was a time when banks did make very high trading revenues because we had all of the volatility heading into the US general election. We also had a lot of volatility in the aftermath of the UK's Brexit vote. So it is going to be down 15%, but down 15% against a pretty high base. However, for the industry, this is an exacerbation of, of what we have already seen in the quarter. So we saw poor trading revenues in the first half of the year as well. So it makes it a little bit hard to argue that it's simply going to be a year of two halves. So if anyone who was following it, um, who was following banking results for 2016, so there was a very poor start to the year for so the first half of the week, and then there was a big bounce back in the second half. That now appears to be not on the cards for for this year. It looks as if it's going to continue to be for the for the third quarter, and no one really expects banks to be able to make up much in the fourth quarter. So it looks like it's going to be down overall for the year. And I think we can we can generally expect that a city which is one of the world's one of the top two investment banks by size in the world, if they're seeing a fall in revenue of of fifteen percent on their trading businesses, it's fair to expect that pretty much everyone in the in this in the street is going to be down somewhere between five to twenty percent within that range. Well in the coming weeks we'll find out for sure. Uh, thank you very much for Laura and uh, we'll see you back in the studio next week. Thank you. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Emma here in the studio, Laura in Dubai and our guest on the line, uh, Ridian Lewis from Ratesetter. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Alex Wisniewska. Until next week, goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.